This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about some of the causes and potential cures of the opioid crisis. Our clips today come from The Real News, Backstory, Democracy Now!, The Dig from Jacobin Magazine, Counterspin, and Economic Update. Two months after saying he would take action, President Trump has declared the opioid overdose crisis a public health emergency. Beyond the shocking death toll, the terrible measure of the opioid crisis includes the families ripped apart and, for many communities, a generation of lost potential and opportunity. This epidemic is a national health emergency. We cannot allow this to continue. It is time to liberate our communities from the scourge of drug addiction. Trump's decision falls short of what his own commission recommended in August. The commission said a national emergency should be called, which would have freed up new federal resources. Instead, Trump's designation only authorizes the use of existing resources. Over 59,000 Americans died of opioid overdoses in 2016, and this year is on pace to top that record. Johan Hari is author of the best-selling book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. Johan, welcome. I guess my first question is, if Trump is not allocating new resources for this crisis, then is he really doing anything at all? If you want to understand Donald Trump's approach towards addiction, look at what he did to his own brother. He talked today about his brother, Fred Trump Jr., who had, was such a severe alcoholic that he, he drank himself to death in his 30s. It's a tragic and awful case. Donald Trump's response to his brother's severe addiction was to take his brother's widow and disabled baby to court to cut them out of the family estate. And Trump's response to the nation's addiction crisis is quite similar. It's very disturbing. If you look through what he said, it's really a catalogue of errors, things that have been tried, things that I reported on in great detail for Chasing the Screen. And we know the results. So just say no is one of his approaches. We know what happens. There was a study of the de- major study of the D.A.R.E. program, which told us to just say no. The kids who went through it were slightly more likely to use drugs than the kids who hadn't. He says that the solution is to block supply from Mexico. Um, we n- build the wall. You will have noticed there are prisons in the United States which have walls around them. I've been in a lot of those prisons. You can get drugs in every damn one of them. If you can't, if you can't even keep drugs out of a, a small walled perimeter, it's a good luck out of a 3,000-mile border with, with Mexico. It's straightforward racism. It, the h- core problem here is that Trump and the wider, I'm afraid, the wider American culture is misunderstanding why this crisis is ha- happening, and therefore we're not finding the right solutions. This crisis is not happening because drugs are available. Very powerful intoxicants have been available every day the United States existed. The reason there is a very severe crisis right now is because there's an enormous amount of pain in the United States. Go to the places I've been to where the crisis is worst, like Monadnock in, in New Hampshire, 
or Cleveland, Ohio, and you see this immediately. There's a really interesting parallel, I think, in, I'm, I've spent about half my year in the US, but I'm in Britain at the moment, and in the history of this city, London, there's a really important parallel that tells you, I think, what's going on with the opioid crisis. So in the 18th century, huge numbers of people in Britain were driven out of the countryside into these disgusting urban slums. It was the birth of industrialization. And they lost everything that gave their lives meaning. They lost their communities, their they lost the kind of work they'd done. They lost their sense of themselves. And what happened was something called the gin craze. It was an outbreak of mass alcoholism. And it really did happen. There's a famous painting from the time of a woman like drinking a bottle of gin while her baby falls out of a window, right? And, and there really was this crisis. And at the time, what people said is what Donald Trump said today. Look at this evil drug gin. Look at how it destroys people. If only we could get rid of this evil drug gin, everything would be okay. Yeah, Johan, I mean, as you say, Trump's policies are going to be hurting the very communities that voted for him where this crisis has exploded. So let me ask you, though, even if we understand that, you know, as you say, at the heart of addiction is pain, is a loss of connection, how do we apply that to policy? We've got to look at the plate. There's nothing abstract about the answer to this question, which is exactly the right question to be asking. I've been to the places that have done it. So I'll give you an example. Switzerland had a massive opioid crisis in the 1990s. People might remember horrendous scenes from Switzerland of people, you know, mass outbreak of uh, quite extreme heroin use, often in public. Catastrophe. They tried lots of different things and they solved that crisis. I've reported on it in depth. I'm also a Swiss citizen as well as, obviously, as you can tell from my voice, British. I saw it in depth. Ruth Dreyfus, the president of Switzerland, explained to people, when you hear the word legalization, what you picture is like anarchy and chaos. What we have now is anarchy and chaos. We have unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown drug users, all in the dark, all filled with violence, disease and chaos. So what she did is she legalized heroin in a way that is radically different to what happens in the United States with prescription opioids or illegal heroin. So the way it works is if you've got an opioid addiction, you're assigned to a clinic. You go to that clinic. I went to the one in Geneva. You turn up at seven o'clock in the morning because Swiss people believe in doing things early. You turn up, you're given your heroin or opioid there. You can't take it out with you. You've got to use it there. A nurse will watch you. And then you leave to go to your therapy and your job because they give you really extensive um, care, psychological support, subsidized housing, subsidized work to, to really deal with the problem that was making you want to anesthetize yourself all the time in the first place. So this, think about this because you want to contrast it with what's happening in the US at the moment. There are two prongs. The first prong is give the person the drug. The second prong is really deal psychologically and environmentally with the reasons why they were using it in the first place. And one of the things that fascinated me when I went to this clinic is you can stay on that program as long as you want. There is never any pressure to cut back and they will give you any dose you want apart from a fatal one. And it really surprised me. I thought, well, surely everyone will just stay on it forever then. And I spoke to the psychiatrist there, Rita Mangi, who explained to me, you know, I said to her, well, why? In fact, she explained to me that, that, um, that there was virtually nobody who was still on the program uh, 10 years on who'd been on it at the start. Almost everyone chooses to cut back and stop over time. And I said to her, well, why is that? And she said, well, because we look after them and their lives get better. And then as their lives get better, they don't want to be anesthetized so much. Now, contrast that to what's happening in the US. And I have to say, cheered on not just by Trump, but by actually by a lot of people on our side who are good and decent people who are really misunderstanding this crisis and actually recommending policies that are, even, that are going to cause even more harm. So what happens in the US is 
if they if your doctor is prescribing to you and your doctor realizes that you're using not because of physical pain but because of psychological pain your doctor is required by law to cut you off that is a legal requirement or they can go to prison as a drug dealer which has happened to many doctors so then you're on your own in an environment where it's extremely expensive to buy these prescription drugs on the black market whereas heroin is quite cheap for reasons I'm happy to explain if you want so what we get is you're transferred you, you get far from getting the support you get in in Switzerland you're actually transferred into a criminal market where you become a criminal actually you face you know imprisonment stigmatization punishment we're doing the exact opposite of the policy that worked in reducing opioid crisis and if you want to know the results in Switzerland just look at them do you know how many people have died of overdoses on the legal heroin program in Switzerland the answer is zero literally nobody there remains an illegal market it's much smaller very few people die in that far fewer than died before the legalization and and Switzerland is a very conservative country my grandmother got the vote in uh, 1974 this is not san francisco and yet when they had a referendum on this program once people had seen it in practice they actually um there was an in, uh, there was an enormous support for it 70% of swiss people voted to keep opioids legal for precisely that reason Earlier, we talked about how doctors were the source of opiate addiction in the late 19th century. As we mentioned, this was before there was a clear understanding of the physiology of addiction. And that's reflected in the language of the time. Addicts simply had opium or morphine habits. But that changed in the early 20th century when addiction became criminalized over fears of recreational drug use. People once thought to have habits now became known as junkies. In the 1920s, a Philadelphia hospital opened a narcotics ward for recovering addicts. The patients were monitored while they suffered through withdrawal from morphine and other drugs. Once those symptoms stopped, the addicts were pronounced cured and sent home. Historian Carolyn Jean Acker reconstructed the lives of several hundred of these patients. One of them was a fellow she calls James Martin. He was a working-class white man who lived in New York City, near Chinatown. In 1908, the then 21-year-old Martin went on a double date that changed his life. He wanted to impress the people he was with. And so he said, I know where there's an opium den. Let's go smoke some. And he found it made him feel really good. So he started going back and back. But in 1909... Just a year after Martin developed this habit, the federal government banned the importation of what it called smoking opium. The law deliberately targeted recreational use of the drug. It did not ban opium or morphine used in medicine. So for someone like James Martin, he had become addicted to opium, and suddenly he had no access to it. But guess what was pretty easy to get on the street in those days? At pharmacies, still completely legally sold except in a few localities, heroin. So he began sniffing heroin as a substitute for the opium. James Martin changed his drug use behavior in specific response to the passage of legislation. Heroin, an opioid derived from morphine, didn't start out as a street drug. It started out as a pharmaceutical drug. 
The German company Bayer developed heroin in the 1890s and sold it over-the-counter as a cough suppressant. The American Medical Association approved heroin for general use in 1906 and urged doctors to prescribe it instead of morphine, believing it to be less addictive. Physicians gave it to both children and adults. Remembering that this is a time when tuberculosis was still the leading cause of death, coughing was a, was an important prevalent symptom, a distressing one, and it seemed like a, a drug that would uh, calm that would be useful, and it certainly made people feel better. But you didn't have to have a cough to feel better from, from right. heroin. Pharmaceutical heroin was twice as powerful as morphine. And though Bayer promoted it as a safer, non-addictive substitute for morphine, heroin was even more addictive. And the drug's easy availability produced a thriving black market for recreational users, especially after the federal government banned smoking opium. And so, for example, a teenage boys in pool halls were snorting heroin, sniffing it up into the nose and into the bloodstream and, and quite quickly into the brain and produce a, a wonderful feeling, a kind of a rush and a feeling of utter, utter calmness. So this pattern of use was, was spreading. It was popular. It was causing alarm. And Congress responded to that alarm with a landmark law known as the Harrison Narcotic Act of 1914. And this act outlawed the non-medical use of a set of drugs, including morphine, heroin, and cocaine. And again, this was targeted specifically at use associated with entertainment districts and largely working-class neighborhoods. Um, Optimists believed that you simply keep the drugs from being imported, and no one can get them, and the drug use problem will disappear. We've banned this. The problem's going to go away. But it quickly became evident that the problem wasn't, in fact, going away. In the 1920s, a physician named Lawrence Kolb tried to figure out why banning drugs didn't seem to eliminate drug use. He classified addicts into two types. And the main distinction was people, he he really used the term innocent, People who accidentally became addicted because they had Mm. chronic pain, their physician was prescribing it for them, and they were becoming addicted, and Kolb had complete sympathy for them and felt they just deserved support, and maybe even it it made sense for them to have a a doctor-managed continuing supply of of morphine. In other words, medical addicts. So that's type 1. But the main category he singled out was what he called type 2. And these were people who started using the drug for pleasure, and became addicted. It was never any a medical issue at all, as far as he was concerned, that, that drove them to the use. But he believed that the people who became heroin addicts were born with a certain kind of vulnerability that mm. made them susceptible to having a just much more powerful response when they encountered heroin and then sliding into addiction. So given, given Kolb's categories, you might say that James Martin is more of a type 2 user. Absolutely. Exactly right. He engaged in this bad behavior, which became criminal once the uh, Harrison Narcotics Act was passed. Um, his class background, there was serious classism built into Kolb's definition. His class mm-hmm. background was modest. Um, and uh, he typified the addict who became this conundrum over the course of the middle decades of the 20th century. How do we deal with this? 
Kolb's views on addiction shaped public health policy for decades. His understanding of type 2 addiction also provided the intellectual underpinnings for the war on drugs, federal drug laws that criminalized addicts like James Martin. Acker says that Martin went through detox and withdrawal several times and struggled with his addiction for at least 15 years. We don't know what happened to him after that, but we do know that he represents a new kind of addict in the American imagination, a junkie. What happened was that heroin became referred to as junk. And that partly reflected the kind of, I mean, some of these patients I studied had a real sense of, of self-disgust at, at what had happened to them. And that, that, that they, in their sense, had just become enslaved to this drug. It was so associated with the addicts that it became a label for them. And the junkie became a profound symbol of deviance to mainstream conventional Americans. So the, the way in which the junkie is being targeted um, as a kind of site of, of regulation, does that provide any kind of, you know, reveal about the nature of addiction itself? I think it reveals more about the nature of American society and to some extent societies in general. And that is the need to find some explanation for problems. So we have this recurring pattern of a panic about a drug, overreaction, and perhaps not as much social learning as would be good for us. U.S. drug policy has always drawn a hard and fast line between pharmaceutical and recreational users, between legal and illegal drugs. But given what we know about the physiological nature of addiction, a 19th century morphine addict isn't all that different from a 20th century heroin addict. Acker says at least some people are starting to understand this. In addition to her academic work, she spent many years working with heroin addicts, and she sees some hopeful signs. I think that we've had an amazing breakthrough in understanding of drug use behaviors and how to respond to them in the context of the crisis of AIDS and the recognition that HIV could be transmitted through sharing syringes. Activists sprang up to set up syringe distribution programs to ensure a sterile supply of syringes to injectors. And some people thought this was the craziest thing in the world. What? You know, you're, they're just going to use them to shoot up heroin? But from a public health point of view, it made perfect sense because it was interrupting the transmission of a pathogen from one body to another body. AIDS activists carried out this work, even when it was against the law. In this context, they, they developed relationships with drug users, trusting relationships. Uh, people who would, had junkies, injectors who had been treated terribly by the medical establishment, by social service organizations, who didn't want to work with anyone who was an active drug user. And so we're learning that this, this uh, disdain of the user and the refusal to work with them until they stop using is counterproductive, that you right. really can construct productive relationships and help people get better for them. In terms of fighting climate change, one of the most effective pieces of low-hanging fruit to start our shift to a renewable energy future is to sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than that of old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly 
indefinitely. To sign up, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best. If they don't service your area now, they have plans to come your way soon. So don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you may think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. Explain what you mean. People are dying because of ignorance, not because of opioids. Well, you just played uh, Trump and uh, what the people just heard was ignorance. And that's why people are dying. Uh, we're not really addressing what the real issues are. It's really simple. Uh, we think about the opioid deaths. Number one, people said, like, the number you said, I think 64,000. That's not opioid deaths only. There are other types of deaths that are occurring. That's all drugs sort of, sort of deaths, including antidepressants, including all of those other drugs. And so we have to be careful about inflating these numbers, one. But the fact that people are dying because of opioids, that's a real problem. And when we think about the deaths themselves, most of the people are dying in part, large part because they combine opioids with another sedative like alcohol, like a benzodiazepine. A benzodiazepine is something like Xanax. Um, they also combine opioids with older antihistamines. Um, those sorts of things, uh, they increase the risk, the risk. Uh, associated with opioids. But a major, another major problem people are dying is because uh, they think that they may have something like heroin when in fact they have something like fentanyl. Much of the heroin on the street today is now being tainted with this drug called fentanyl. Fentanyl is about uh, 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin. Just simply means that less of the drug is needed to uh, produce the required effect. But unsuspecting users may take the amount that they usually take with heroin, thinking that it's heroin, when in fact it's fentanyl. Okay, so we say, how do we fix this? This is really simple. What we can do, we can simply set up free drug purity testing sites. They do this in Spain. They do this in the Netherlands. They do this in Switzerland. It's re really simple. That way, when people understand what's in their drug, they can scale back their use or not use it. Free drug purity testings would tell you the complete composition of the drug that you have. So if you want to save lives, you can set that up easily. Doesn't cost that much money. People are talking about, we need more money, we need more money. Uh, maybe you need some more money, but let's make sure we use the money smartly. I'm concerned that if we add more money, we will send most of the money to law enforcement. And when we do that, we know what happens. We saw it with crack. We saw it with opioids before in the 1960s, what happens is more black and brown people will be arrested. Do not forget that. And another thing that happens is that we are, wor I worry that people who need prescription opioids for their pain will not be able to get the prescription opioids because we are getting crazy about opioids in general. Opioids are excellent medications to treat pain, and we can't forget that. We also have seen, even before this, we know that, for example, black people are less likely to be, be prescribed opioids even when they need it, uh, less likely than their white counterparts. And so all of these sort of unintended consequences, they always happen when we get crazy about drugs and we don't even save people.
Your piece, uh, Carl Hart, in The Scientific American starts, recently driven largely by opioid-related deaths, predominantly by our white sisters and brothers. President Trump proclaimed that the opioid problem is now a national emergency, vowed to spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money uh, on the opioid crisis, because it's a serious problem, the likes of which we have never uh, had. You say this is false. And also by talking about our white sisters and brothers, talk about race and the racial component of this. Well, we have more white people in the country. And so when we have these kind of issues going on, of course, there'll be more white people who are affected. There are more white people dying because of the opioid crisis. That's a fact. As a result, you have people who represent us are largely white people, white people from rural areas and that sort of thing. And they have uh brought this to the attention of the American public in part because of our white brothers and sisters. That's a fact. I mean, that's how it always has been. So, But I want to make sure people understand this clearly. I wrote a piece in the New York Times in August where I pointed out that this isn't new. Even with crack, there were white, more white users, and those white users got treatment, whereas the brothers and sisters, black brothers and sisters, went to jail. That's that's so the same sort of thing is happening in this case. Uh, 80% of the people who are being currently arrested for the opioids are black and Latino, even though they don't use those drugs at rates higher than their white brothers and sisters. And so this is just the American pattern of dealing with drugs. It's not new and we continue the same thing. So I'm asking people, let's not get crazy. Let's just focus on the real problems. And another concern too is uh, another way we can deal with these sort of deaths. And for me, that's the real concern because when we think about drug addiction, uh, the people, the number of people who will become addicted to opioids are considerably lower than we're making it out to be. Only about a quarter of the people who use something like heroin will become addicted. That means the vast majority are not addicted. But one way we can deal with the deaths, the major concern, another way we can deal is just make naloxone, which is an opioid blocker, make it more available. One of the things that it happens in, that has happened in recent years is that pharmaceutical companies have jacked the price up of naloxone, an old drug that's been here since the 1960s. I mean, if Congress really wanted to do something. If the president really wanted to do something, he would hold those pharmaceuticals, those pharmaceutical companies accountable for increasing the price of naloxone, uh, uh, when the price of naloxone should be really cheap. That's one of the things he can do. But people are focused on the money and not focused on being smart. Earlier this year, Attorney General Jeff Sessions vowed a major revival of the so-called war on drugs. Uh, this is Sessions speaking at the Department of Justice headquarters as he rescinded two Obama-era memos that encouraged prosecutors to avoid seeking inordinately harsh sentences for low-level drug offenses. Going forward, I have empowered our prosecutors to charge and pursue the most serious offense, as I believe the law requires, uh, most uh, serious, readily provable offense. It means that we're going to meet our responsibility to enforce the law with judgment and fairness. It is simply the right and moral thing to do. And we know that drugs and crime go hand in hand. They just do. The facts prove that so. Drug trafficking is an inherently dangerous and violent business. If you want to collect a drug debt, you can't file a lawsuit in court. You collect it with the barrel of a gun. 
That's Jeff Sessions, the attorney general of the United States. Dr. Carl Hart, your response. Damn, it's hard to come up with a response for that such ignorance and such. Well, I guess Saturday Night Live does it best. I, I, I don't know what to say about this kind of ignorance. Uh, this kind of ignorance takes us back to the 1980s. Um, and we are all concerned about mass incarceration in the country today. If you want to know how we got there right now, what we're doing with people like Jeff Sessions and that guy in the White House is how we got there. And they're trying to ensure that we go back there in part because it's going to affect primarily negatively affect uh, uh, black people and brown people in this country. And so it's uh, uh, it's frustrating that we have such remarkably ignorant people and mean-spirited people and racist people. And I don't use that word lightly. When I say racist, I mean when people who support policies and their behaviors um, uh, are in such a way that one group disproportionately is unjustly treated. And that's what we have going on right now. So when we have Jeff Sessions saying this sort of thing, the consequences will be racial discrimination, and he's supporting that kind of policy or that action, that makes him a racist. And I don't use that term lightly, as I said. And so I think that I am outraged by him, and I hope the American people are outraged by him, because I thought we were better than that. Daniel, I want to shift a little bit and think about the role that the media has played in some of the complicity. Most of us remember 48 hours on Crack Street and the way that coverage has changed in the media and the work that you're trying to do in, in shifting that. But would you talk about what you've seen and how the media has driven many of the perceptions and the myths that it seems to have pushed out so that the average person walking around has a perception of drug dealers and all of us. And I'm not, you know, I have to tell you one of the things in doing this work, you know, that I'm both embarrassed to admit, but it has, but it has to be true that one of the most shocking things that I found out was that the majority of people who use crack weren't black. Of course, it or sold, or sold it. And of course that kind of makes sense, given the numbers alone. But I remember being shocked by that because of, you know, things I've seen. So if I, right? But most of the people who smoke crack are white. Who knew? <laughs> and, and so there's just this ways that we drive this. Would you to pull that apart a little bit for us? Yeah. Um, so I think everyone in this room, or mostly everyone in this room, understands that ending the drug war means ending prohibition full stop, which means no more arresting and incarcerating drug dealers. But um, even as we've seen public opinion really grow more empathetic to drug users as the, as the face in the media of drug users has become whiter. Um, people still don't often get that that means that we need to end the war against drug dealers as well. And what's even more troubling is that I think with the opioid crisis, in some ways, what we're seeing is the deepening empathy for the white user, potentially even fueling a greater sense of punitiveness towards the dealers that are harming these more idealized users. And I think the media um, often plays 
a really negative role and is deeply complicit in propagating very confused ideas about why so many people are dying from overdoses right now in the United States and that the media coverage plays a major role in legitimating the growing use, for example, of these drug delivery resulting in death charges that we're seeing prosecutors around the country pick up to charge dealers with in cases where they uh, are accused of selling opioids that resulted in a fatal overdose. Um, I think the really key thing that the media fails to do is provide context. Um, with the opioid crisis, you almost never see an article in a paper like the New York Times that looks into why fentanyl has emerged. I have never seen an article in a, in a daily newspaper in the United States or seen something on TV explaining the iron law of prohibition, the fact that under prohibition, drug dealers are incentivized, systematically incentivized, to pack the most potent drug possible into the smallest quantity possible to maximize profits and minimize the possibility of detection from law enforcement. Instead, what we see is... Uh, Pull that apart a little bit. Let's oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Let's <laughs> just say, how are drugs... How are we actually complicit? Say that a little bit more broadly. So... Let's say you're just like a, a drug dealer uh, trying to move drugs across the border from Mexico to the U.S., and you're kind of agnostic as to what kind of drug you'd like to move. Like, you'd just like to make some money because this is your job. Um, well, pot is not a great thing to try to bring across the border because it's really bulky. Um, so the smaller you can get something and the more potency you can pack into that, the more... Pr- the more profitability you can pack into a smaller quantity, which makes it less likely to be detected by law enforcement. So fentanyl is the perfect drug to achieve this. And yet the media frames everyday drug dealers and even really drug users who just deal a little on the side to pay for their own, uh, pay for their own stuff, um, as though they are murdering people by selling fentanyl when fentanyl is a structural outcome of drug prohibition and the drug war. But that critical context is missing. So we have these entrepreneurial, opportunistic prosecutors all over the country uh, having these press conferences after someone fatally ODs and presenting this narrative that makes sense on the surface to a lot of people, which is uh, a narrative with a villain and a victim. This person... Uh, is the the villain who sold who sold the drugs, and this person died, and they're the victim. And what we're going to do to make sure that there are fewer victims is punish this person mercilessly. And that's what these drug overdose homicide charges are doing in Pennsylvania, which where I've been researching these charges. Uh, I think the maximum is uh, is forty years. And I just uh, I'm profiling a young woman. Um, who, uh, one of the more recent times she tried to kill herself, uh, she went out, um, behind her parents' house and laid down on commuter rail tracks and somehow survived when a commuter rail train ran over her. She's someone who is in no way conceivably like even a drug dealer by profession, but that label is so powerful that when the prosecutor, when the DA of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania gets up there and says she sold someone fentanyl and then they died, um, 
And then lastly, I'll just say, I think it's really critical that we identify what the drug war, what the demon of drug de- demonization of drug dealers political function is. And that is to legitimate the drug war. If the attention is on the drug dealers and the blame is put on them and drug, drug dealers are scapegoated for the harms that drugs cause, that's what keeps us from, that's, that's the last uh, refuge of prohibition. Because once we stop demonizing drug dealers, then we can understand that so many of these harms are caused by prohibition. And just to tie it back into the media, the media has a role, to, a, a, a basic ethical responsibility to tell that story and to provide historical context. Um, and that fails all the time. And one last thing I will say about that is looking back to, for example, the, the capture of El Chapo, Guzman, you mentioned that. Did anyone read a single article or see a single segment on the television news um, even attempting to explain whether the capture of El Chapo would do anything to uh, meet the drug war's own own purported stated aims, which is, I guess, to like reduce the availability of illicit drugs in the United States? It wasn't even addressed as a possibility that it would do any good, which just shows the tunnel vision that the media has gotten into in this. In fact, what's happened in Mexico is that we've gone from uh, four dominant drug cartels in 2006 to uh, between nine and 20 now, and a massive, unbelievable level of violence as people try to take control of, of the illicit market. And that context is just never there in the media, and it's not never, but rarely, and it's infuriating and it's causing harm. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. And and you know what company I'm talking about. It's basically the one company online. Uh, You know, you probably shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases or you have your standard selection of home goods delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. It'd be great if we could all avoid them somehow, but, you know, it's like climate change. What we really need is regulation, not just personal choices. So until we can get some anti-monopoly trust-busting legislation passed, a lot of us are going to continue to make the not-completely-irrational choice of shopping there. So whether you feel your conscience needs soothing or not— you can support the production of this show by using our affiliate link and redirecting some of those purchasing dollars to us. Your shopping experience is identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. So to get the link, go to bestoftheleft.com and use our banner to click through to either the U.S., Canada, or U.K. stores and bookmark the page so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. Donald Trump called on the Department of Health and Human Services to declare a public health emergency. 
stating in what the New York Times called an elaborate and emotional ceremony that opioids represent, quote, the worst drug crisis in American history. And even if you really think about it, world history, close quote. As is often the case, it wasn't exactly clear what he was talking about, but media aren't always much clearer. Is the crisis overdose deaths, opiates themselves, their overprescription, their use, addiction, the issues that lead to addiction? You don't need to be in denial about a problem to recognize that the definition of the problem will affect the response. And when it comes to the war on drugs in this country, it's not as though there is no record to check. So what does Trump's recent declaration mean? And what possible responses to problems associated with opioids are existing, but maybe not mentioned? We're joined now by Maria McFarland Sanchez Moreno, Executive Director of Drug Policy Alliance. Welcome to Counterspin, Maria McFarland Sanchez Moreno. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I've heard Trump's declaration of a public health emergency around opioids described as good but not enough, good but it needs money attached. We can be grateful for official attention, which we know is meaningful, but if a policy is wrongheaded or misdirected, it's hard to wish that it had more fuel behind it. I wonder if you can just walk us through some of the things that you found problematic or that concerned you about Trump's declaration? Yeah, so I wouldn't call his declaration good. I would say that there were a couple of good proposals buried in there that might mitigate some of the harm of the overdose crisis. But overwhelmingly, his speech just betrayed ignorance and perhaps deliberate indifference to the realities underlying drugs and drug use in the United States. And if the U.S. really pursues the path that he has charted in his rhetoric, it's a recipe for more overdose deaths, continued harsh war on drugs, and no real meaningful progress. Well, you have said that the war on drugs is a factor in the overdose crisis. What do you mean by that? A big part of the problem here is the war on drugs itself. The fact that For over 50 years, the U.S. has been focusing on strictly prohibiting access to certain types of drugs and using criminal justice responses to deal with them. As a result, people who use drugs are often doing so underground in ways that make it much more likely that they will overdose much more likely that they will encounter substances that have been adulterated, for example, with fentanyl and have no way to check them, much more likely that they will not have basic information about how to mitigate risk. For example, a huge number of the overdoses that we're seeing right now have to do with mixing substances, with mixing opioids and alcohol or mixing opioids and benzodiazepine. Those deaths perhaps could be prevented if people knew that mixing was a major factor in overdose. But right now, public education around drugs doesn't really get into those issues. And what Trump was proposing in his speech was a return to just say no style ad campaigns and education campaigns from the 1980s, which are what the Reagans pushed and were 
proven to be utterly ineffective because young people tend to dismiss them as patronizing and not based on reality. Yeah, I mean, just say no. I think many people thought that that was kind of a punchline at this point, you know, but now it's being reintroduced as actual policy. And Donald Trump has said of opioids and of drugs in general, it's really, really easy not to take them. And it seems sort of emblematic of a bifurcation of a difference, you know, where some people think if you talk about drugs, it's the same as sex, you know, if you talk about it, that's going to make people do it. And so what we really need to say is, no, that's not, that's not acceptable. You won't do that. That's not going to happen. And then you don't get any clarity about what happens if it happens. Yeah, I think we need to talk about a, a fundamental shift in the way we frame drug issues. I think we need to, as a society, and certainly the government, needs to recognize that drug use is a fact, that there are always going to be some people in society who use drugs, whether they're legal or not. Then you have to look at, okay, some people are going to use drugs, some people will misuse drugs. How can you reduce the likelihood that people will misuse drugs and that they will have the whole host of problems that are associated with misuse? And how can you mitigate the risks that the worst things will happen, like overdose? If you approach it from that perspective, then you're talking about, for example, supervised consumption sites, which San Francisco is now considering and Seattle is considering, which would allow people to inject drugs under the supervision of trained professionals who can make sure that they don't overdose, make sure that they're using clean needles, which reduce the likelihood of infection, and refer them to treatment or other services as needed to help them if they want help. But instead, you have this just harsh black and white, just say no mentality that is still reflected in the criminal justice system, where if you use drugs, the sole response is punishment. And that hasn't worked. The U.S. has done that for 50 years, and it's landed us here. <laughs> it's time to think about new, more compassionate, and frankly, more evidence-based scientific approaches. Well, I wrote in real time about corporate media's near gleeful promotion of the idea of crack babies, uh, children whose mothers used crack while pregnant as a race of subhuman drones, uh, a bio underclass, a group of people whose inferiority was stamped at birth. It was vile and racist and wrong and had an impact, you know, and I just wonder, is it possible to go forward without reckoning with that? Lots of folks have talked about you know, the difference, the sort of more public health based and compassion based approach to opioid addiction, which is affecting primarily white people and comparing it with crack. But it's not, though, that race is somehow absent in this current conversation, though, is it? Well, I think that people who are being impacted by the opioid overdose crisis, they're people of all backgrounds and, and colors, but the focus has been on the impact on white people, and that's because the highest increases in overdose rates have been seen among white middle-aged men. And so there's this perception that the overdose crisis is about white people when, in fact, many people of color are also affected. I think what we need to consider is, one, that, yes, society as a whole is treating this crisis differently from past crises, but it's also not talking about 
all of the horrible ways in which the criminalization approach has impacted people of color by incarcerating and arresting enormous numbers of black and brown people in grossly disproportionate manners. A black person in Manhattan is 11 times more likely than a white person to be arrested for simple drug use, even though they use drugs at the same rates. And and that tells you something about how the war on drugs has been waged. There are generations worth of harm there that have been done that need to be accounted for that aren't just going to be wiped away because states might start looking at opioids. And I think we also need to watch out for responses that may look more compassionately at people who use drugs or may offer more treatment or more access to naloxone, which is the overdose reversal medication for people who use drugs, but still come down harshly on people who are perceived as supplying or distributing those drugs. And that was in Trump's speech. Trump spoke about immigrants who are supposedly bringing all these drugs across the border and how we need to solve the problem by building a a border wall, which, again, is an old, old solution. The U.S. has poured billions of dollars into trying to stop drugs from coming into the United States, and it has completely failed, not for lack of trying, but simply because... When you talk about an illicit market of this size, the amount of money that organized crime can get through it is so huge that they can always find new ways around the barriers that the U.S. puts up. And every time the U.S. or Mexico or another country arrests a senior leader of one of these groups, somebody else comes in and fills their shoes because it's that profitable. So again, this is a never-ending war. It will not stop because the more money the U.S. puts into it, the more profitable it becomes. And it's just this vicious cycle. We need to find other ways to deal with these problems that aren't just criminalize, demonize certain communities. And, you know, the other piece of it is Of course, he's focusing on immigrants or, as in the past and to this day, demonizing certain communities as being responsible for drug problems when, in fact, that's a a gross exaggeration. It involves stigmatizing people and it's going to do terrible harm. Well, let me just ask you, finally, sometimes I think in part because of media, it becomes difficult to see other ways out. You know, we're offered what look like a range of choices but some things are off the page. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what an actual public health approach to, in this case, the opioid crisis would look like. So it would have different pieces. One would be simply focusing on direct overdose prevention. Trump talks a little bit about this, but really uh, putting resources into funding naloxone, the overdose reversal medication at the community level and removing bars on access to it and focusing on reducing its price, which is a a major barrier to access. So it's not just putting it in, in the hands of first responders, but so that also family members and friends, people close to those who use drugs can also have access to naloxone and use it in a timely way at the time of an overdose. Another piece of it has to do with treatment. I feel very strongly, and I would argue that it's very important that treatment be available to people who want it voluntarily, but the U.S. should not be focused on coercing 
people into treatment because that tends to be ineffective. Now, for people who want it, often they can't access it. So there's a lot to be done in increasing access to treatment, including the treatment that has been proven to be most effective for opioids, which is medically assisted treatment with methadone and other medications. That's another piece of that. There's also putting resources into research and evaluating other forms of pain management, looking at medical marijuana as an option. And there are studies that suggest that states that have legalized medical marijuana opioids are less of a problem. I would also say that we need to look at reducing harms from drug misuse, not just overdose, but infection, spread of hep C, and so on. And that means looking at supervised consumption sites, which I mentioned before, and providing free drug checking so that people who are using heroin or other drugs can get them checked to make sure that they're not contaminated with fentanyl and they won't be at as high a risk of overdose. And then the final piece of this is around education and prevention, and that means offering meaningful evidence-based education around drugs and the risks of drug misuse that go far beyond just say no. estimated to be 2 million addicts in the United States. However, there are probably a lot more people don't answer questions and say, uh, hey, I'm an addict. So, you know, you have a wild death rate, not only in the 20s and teens, but also the 30s and 40s. Opioid addiction overdose is now the biggest cause of accidental death for people under 50 the biggest cause in the United States. Since the year 2000, 200,000 people have died of overdoses, usually from opioids, which are synthetic opiates. Opiates are things like heroin that are grown, poppy extracts. Opioids are chemical opiates. They're things like fentanyl or oxycontin, oxycodone, oxycontin, and oxycodone being the biggest offenders the biggest killers of all. And what's the number for 2016, the last year we have? How many people died from overdoses of these drugs? 64,000 people died directly from overdoses. Another 95,000 died from the indirect causes of opiate addiction. Wow. So this is a this is off the charts. This is an unbelievable killer. That, worse than AIDS. Worse, worse than, than almost anything one can think of. More deaths in a year than any war we've participated in for decades has caused. I mean, it is, it, I'm overwhelmed every time I see this number, uh, thanks to your intervention. Give us an idea as a, as a practicing mental health counselor and so on. Why is this problem? How do you account for the United States being awash in this level of 
of self-destruction. There's no other way to describe it. What's this about? Why is this happening? Well, addiction increases. It's a combination. It's a combination of the direct hustling of OxyContin by the Sackler family's um, Purdue Pharma company, for which they have no accountability. And it's also the thing, addiction increases with inequality. Only a small percentage of addiction has a chemical hook. The rest, according to Dr. Carl Hart, the authority at the Columbia Study um, Laboratory for Addiction and author of an impressive book, the rest is due to isolation and trauma. Americans are more lonely and isolated than they've ever been before. They don't go to work with other people. They don't join unions. They don't join clubs and bowling leagues and anything else. And they're terribly lonely and isolated. The people at the top and the middle don't associate with the poor. The public schools don't bring people together as they used to. Even our cabinet member, Betty DeVos, in charge of education, is a believer in charter schools and private Christian education, which isolates some people from the rest. So that we have a very isolated society and people are very lonely and a very traumatic one. I must say that the big increases in employment are in the gig economy, which you do all by yourself. You drive your Uber car, your own car, of course, for Uber, for Lyft or whatever. You deliver packages for Amazon in your own car as part of this great gig and so on. So if I can draw you out, the conditions of work being isolating, the conditions of work in which the majority of people are falling further and further behind the image of what the American dream and the good life is like, that you're producing conditions of work and life that are driving large numbers of people to seek some sort of escape in an addiction? Is, uh, am I understanding you? It's not only an escape. It's something to look forward to. I have a client from Alabama, and she said that all of the cousins in her very large family have left Alabama, where they came from, rural Alabama, because if they stayed, they'd all be addicts because the only thing they could look forward to that was exciting was getting high. Not a family, not a job, not a career. Families have broken down. Marriage has broken down. Careers have broken down. Opportunities for blue collar Americans have broken down. It's the end of an empire, even though the military doesn't seem to believe that. And the society is breaking down. And so that people are terribly lonely and isolated and they want to look forward to something that makes them happy. And drugs can make people feel happier, even if they introduce you, particularly when they're criminalized, as in our society, into a life of criminals, into a life of substances which are doctored and often kill you in, into a whole abandonment of work. Because if there's a drug test and you get caught, you lose your job, none of which are true in a decriminalized drug culture. But nonetheless, people are isolated and lonely and traumatized. Let me ask you another question that comes up often. There's this argument that in the United States, as a person in the psychology profession, 
you might have some important insight here. There's an argument that says that the kinds of difficulty that lead human beings to addiction have, as you've said, to do with trauma, isolation, depression, disconnection from other people. But we as a psychologically attuned population have been taught to believe that the problems of addiction are chemical, has something to do with a certain chemical imbalance. What do you think about these? These are alternative ways of understanding it. How do you explain and where is your view about this? Well, although if you take OxyContin and opioids for a while, that does make alterations in your brain. The hook of drugs is only a small percentage, a chemical hook. The rest is an emotional hook. It's a disease of loneliness and despair, not of chemical imbalance. The chemical, everything is, is everything that the brain does has a biochemical component. So you can change your brain through therapy. You can change your brain through medications of various kinds or through opiates. But the body is is a biochemical, psychological unity. It's not separate. And that's a bogus argument. I Carl see- Hart at Columbia has really shown that beautifully in his book. Here's my economics coming in. The story about depression being chemical is a wonderful story because it suggests that the drug, a chemical, if you add it, will correct the balance and you'll solve your problem. So that the drug company has an enormous vested interest in profiting by selling drugs to people who are convinced that the problem of their depression, of their anxiety, of their addiction is a chemical balance issue. Whereas you don't have any comparable corporation doing therapy. That's That's done by lots of little individuals like yourself who can't mobilize the advertising, the briberies and all the rest that go with creating a market so that we can see the economics are pushing people in the direction of chemicals. And now you've shown us that one of these chemicals, fentanyl in particular, has become the disaster of disasters in our culture. And that's in part because of this ideology of chemistry rather than emotion. That's right. The most definitive studies were done, of course, in England, has a public health system. They didn't have anybody conducting the studies that were uh, financing the products. And they studied thousands of people, giving them serotonin uptake inhibitors, things like Prozac and Paxil and so on. They found that in 75% of the cases, they don't work at all. In about 25%, they work only, and those are the most acute cases, they work only temporarily when you start using them. And then you keep needing more so that they really don't cure you. They don't cure, so you keep taking more. That's the idea.
We've just heard clips today starting with The Real News speaking with Johan Hari about Trump's misguided response to the opioid crisis and some alternate real solutions. Backstory discussed the history of opioid addiction in America. Democracy Now! talked with Dr. Carl Hart about the ignorance of politicians and the inherent racism of our drug policies. The Dig filled in a key bit of missing context of the opioid crisis, that the war on drugs structurally incentivizes the illegal sale of ever more dangerously powerful drugs. Counterspin also discussed the misguided drug war and some of its racial implications. And finally, we just heard Economic Update talking with Dr. Harriet Fraud about some of the psychological aspects of opioid use. As always, you can find the links to these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now... We'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Steve from Tampa. I wanted to take up your homework assignment asking to compare and contrast the fear felt by conservatives living near the U.S.-Mexico border and Israeli Jews. So I think that the fear felt by these two groups is layered, and the top layer is the fear of physical violence, an imminent physical threat. The difference is in the U.S., you have the idea that people coming across the border are going to be violent as thugs or criminals or gang members. They're just rough people, so we shouldn't let them in. In Israel, it's a fear of terrorism. I don't think that Israelis regard every single Palestinian as, as uh, a violent threat, but they don't know who is. So rather than a fear of uh, an ethnic group just being a rough people, you have a fear of an ethnic group being more prone to terrorism or just random acts of violence. But the similarity is how the media pushes these ideas. In the U.S., you have Trump and Fox News uh, bringing up MS-13 a lot. And in Israel, you have a lot of uh, reporting occur on acts of violence committed by Palestinians. For example, a veiled woman pulling out a knife at an Israeli bus stop comes to mind. The other layer of fear is the economic fear. Both groups are worried that if the border is too open, you'll have either um, Latin Americans or Palestinians coming in and taking advantage of the better economic environment. This will strain welfare, this will take jobs, and this will, it's a zero-sum game. So that's the other fear. And intertwined with these two fears is the very important ethnic layer of fear. And this is, this is, uh, it's very, very similar. I think that in the U.S. you have, it's been talked about on this show, it's the fear the browning of America, the fear that whites will no longer be the majority. And in Israel, it it's this insecurity, this national insecurity caused by the accusation of apartheid, which is only strengthened if Israel's population is skewed and Palestinians outnumber Jews in Israel proper, and not just in the surrounding Gaza and West Bank. So these three fears, physical violence, economic threat, and ethnic uh, imbalance, demographic imbalance being caused, I think are really similar. I think that the major difference is the object, the image of that fear. Now, in terms of policy, that's an easy one. For both countries, the response to that fear 
has been a wall and a militarization of the border. But there is some nuance here. In the U.S., the proposed wall stays on the border. In Israel, the wall surrounds any settlement that pops up in the West Bank. So what I'm getting at is that Israel uses its wall as a form of power. And you may see the border of the West Bank on a map, but if you look at where Israel's wall is within the West Bank, it seems as if Israel's border actually extends past. And, I mean, the military controls the wall. So you could say that Israel's border is slowly being extended with each settlement that pops up, and walls go around these settlements. A major difference is the attitude on guns, the stance towards guns. In Israel, guns are highly regulated. Um, most Israeli citizens do compulsory military service after high school, and thus most Israeli citizens are trained in firearms. But guns are highly regulated. They're not a household item like they are here. And Israeli citizens, though many are in the reserves and would defend Israel's border if it were under attack, they don't expect to need to defend either themselves or the border um, unless they're actually in, in the military. Whereas in the U.S., guns are a household item. Citizens don't rely, they don't tr have this trust that they are protected by the police or, or the military. So citizens see guns as a means of self-defense that they can use before help arrives. In Israel, it's just not like that. Uh, in terms of other policies created out of fear that caused oppression, I think that Jim Crow comes to mind. Internment of Japanese Americans during World War II comes to mind. But I have a harder time thinking of policies that uh, did not cause oppression. I think that they exist, but it's hard for me to come up with a response. So maybe you'll just have to give me partial credit for this one. Hope it added some nuance to the conversation. Thanks for all you do. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. Although, to be honest, I'm actually having trouble with the voicemail line right now. I, I think probably... Uh, few of you have called in and not been able to get through. Steve, who we just heard from, uh, big thanks to him for persevering and uh, sending in his message by recording it and then emailing it to me. So I'm, I'm on the case. I'm trying to get that fixed. I'll let you know as soon as I do. Normally, though, the number is 202-999-3991. So if you want to uh, call and check and see if I've got it fixed and, and leave a message, that's the number to do it. Now, a quick response to Steve. I wouldn't say that it was a trick question. I really am curious if anyone can think of any policies that have been put into place based on fear that didn't cause oppression, but I can't think of any either. So the the fact that uh, Steve couldn't think of any does not uh, does, does not result in him having any points deducted. So thanks, Steve, for uh, all your comments. I thought they were very uh, thoughtful and insightful. And the second thing I want to uh, go to today is I have a little bit of a bonus clip for you. Prepping today's episode, there is one segment that I would have loved to have included, didn't have time for. It was sort of long and in-depth, and it was 
you know, as, as the Sesame Street song, uh, one of these things just uh, doesn't belong here. One of these things just isn't the same. And, and this is the one that it didn't fit well enough. And so I, I just want to mention it here and encourage you to go listen to the whole thing yourself. Uh, there's a, a great show called The Inquiry, and they put out an episode about not the opioid crisis as we know it, but another opioid crisis. So have a listen to this, just a couple minutes of it. And then if you want to hear the full thing, again, the, the show is The Inquiry, and this is from December 7th, 2017. We had, as a group, never seen anything as inequitably distributed as access for palliative care medical need to pain relief. Comparing access to opioid pain relief in different countries tells a revealing story. While the US gets 30 times more opioid pain relief medication than it needs, Mexico gets only 36% of what it needs – China meets around 16% of its need, while in India, with its massive population, only 4% of the need of these drugs is actually met. In Nigeria, it's a minuscule 0.2%. So there you go. As I said, that was The Inquiry from December 7th, 2017. The title is, Are We Missing a Bigger Opioid Crisis? I think that was a pretty good teaser for you. The, the, the entire episode, it's like 20 minutes, 25 minutes max. So definitely worth your time to check out. I highly recommend it. And, and, and they do a good job anyways. You should check out their other episodes. But if you have comments, unfortunately, I have to encourage you to record a message and send them in. I, I hate that I just figured out that I'm having trouble with the voicemail line as I'm prepping today's show and haven't had time to fix it yet. So I, I don't want to lose out on any great comments in response to this episode or any reason ep episode because of a down voicemail line. So if, if you can, if you have a simple memo recorder on your phone. You can record a quick message and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, and, and that'll work just as well as uh, as the voicemail line. So I would love to hear comments if, if you have anything to say on today's episode, on policy implemented through fear, or anything else you like. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, of course, by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. 